Hey guys, welcome to the Fellowship Greenville Students Podcast. This week, Matt talks about trusting God and feeling God. We look at verses in Genesis 1-2 through and Psalm 113, looking at how God creates order from chaos, defines good and evil, and created us and loves us. Matt talks about how God, who is far above us, has also made his home among us so that we can rule and rest with him forever. We hope you enjoy this message. Welcome everyone. Oh, welcome everyone. Welcome. How are you guys tonight? Oh, so good. Good, good, good. Good, good, good. It is so good to see you guys here tonight. Before I begin anything, Asa, happy birthday, man. 16, sweet 16, bro. Happy birthday, bro. We love you. We're thankful for you. Guys, it is good to see you uh, here tonight. If you were not here, thank you, brother. Guys, give it up for Scott Hudson, everyone. <laughs> That's my husband. If you, were, if you were not here last week, um, this series, I'm using this fancy schmancy TV, and as I was rolling it out tonight, my thumb hit the power button, turned it all off. I've pre-drawn a bunch of stuff that you'll see here in a minute, and I literally, the thought in my head was like, I just spent half an hour drawing all this stuff that they will not see, and I was kind of discouraged, but Scott got it back and rolling, man. Thank you, Scott. Um, listen, tonight, uh, I'm so excited you're here. If you were not here last week, we missed you. Uh, we, we began a new series called Heaven and Earth Collide, and I want to teach over the next few weeks about some ideas about heaven and earth and about creation and what God has done uh, in the scriptures and what is the narrative that we actually see throughout the whole course of the Bible. And uh, kind of my premise is, my conviction is that the way that a lot of us have pieced together our understanding of the overall narrative of the scriptures is through like we heard a sermon one time somewhere about something and that became a puzzle piece and then we had a conversation with a friend or we saw something in a movie or we heard something in a song about heaven or hell or earth or creation or angels or demons or whatever and all these weird puzzle pieces have kind of formed this narrative and so the whole purpose of this series is If we properly understand the biblical narrative of God creating heaven and earth in those domains, the lens by which we see God operating throughout history, everything leading to Jesus, and ultimately our place in it all and eternity becomes so much clearer. And so I'm so excited for this series. I told you last week, I'm going to tell you again probably every week, if you want to get the most out of this series, because admittedly it's a little bit more heady than normal. I'm, I'm I'm using illustrations and I'm drawing it. It's a little bit more heady than I normally do. If you want to get the most, take notes. I'm telling you, you want to take notes, get a pen, get a paper. I want the ink hot on the page because you're writing so fast. Take notes. If you need something, you're like, ah, I didn't come with anything. Dude, I don't care right now. Go, go and get up and grab a, a paper and a pen from the back. I don't mind. Go ahead. It's, it's disruptive. I don't care. Go grab it. I don't mind at all. You have freedom to go grab it. I'd rather you do that and take notes than just sit there and be like, I didn't bring anything. So please go grab it. Um, I, I want to, tonight I want to navigate two questions or two ideas that I think we all struggle with, we all wrestle with at times. We've all asked these questions or we've all felt these, these have been a reality for us. And so I'm just going to kick the night off right off the bat and put these out there. These are the, the two questions I hope to explore tonight with you. And, and these are the questions. Let's go ahead and, and throw them up. Do you struggle to trust God and do you struggle to feel God? Those are the two questions I want to talk about tonight as we look at heaven and earth and God's creation. Do you struggle to trust God in your life? Do you struggle to trust that what God says is actually the best thing for you? That he's the one who gets to define right and wrong. That he's the one who gets to define good and evil. That he's the one who gets to design and define uh, so many things that our culture would push against. And say, no, 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 we get to redefine that. We get to redesign that. We, We get to rethink good and evil and what all that means, we get to choose. Do we trust God? Do we struggle to trust God to take him at his word? That was the original temptation, by the way, when the serpent was speaking to Eve. There were three questions he asked Eve, and they they were all revolving around, did God really say that? Surely he won't do what he said he'd do. You can be like God. And so do we struggle to trust God from the beginning we have, and I would be willing to bet some in here tonight have or uh, have in their past or are currently. And the next one is, do we struggle to feel God? And this is a conversation I have all the time with students. Like, oh man, I'm just struggling to feel God. Well, okay, let's explore that. Is that like in your relationship? 
are you expecting some like mystical encounter, like a dream and an angel shows up like it did with Mary? Like what, what does that mean? But I think at the base of that is in my relationship with God, I, the emotions, the desire is there, the emotions aren't. Like I'm just not experiencing God the way that I think I ought to be. And so I'm struggling to feel God. Anyone there tonight? Okay, one person, thank you for being brave. Do we struggle to trust God? Do we struggle to feel God? I will confess to you, yes, I do at times. Okay, I don't think anyone is immune from these things. There are times where we are confronted with these questions. Um, some of you guys know I, I have kids. I don't know if you know that. I know. I know. It's a shocker. I know. <laughs> Surprise. I do. Uh, I have kids. I have three kids, six, three, and one. And, um, and man, I'll tell you, like, I, I love my kids so much. They bring me so much joy. And they love me. Uh, but there are times when they struggle to believe me. They struggle to trust me. Can you believe that? Some of you guys are shaking your head no, and I personally take offense to that. They struggle to trust me because in their worldview, I mean, six years old, well, he turned six in November, so so technically like late five, six years old, three-year-old, one-year-old, they struggle to trust that daddy knows better than they know even though I'm much, much, much older than them. They struggle to believe that. And so they push against that. And so in our, in our house, we have a way uh, of, I have a way, I've introduced a way of helping them learn how to communicate, all right? So I don't want them to get in trouble. I don't like disciplining my kids. I don't like putting them in timeout. I don't like when they cry and because they're sad. I don't like those things. But we do have consequences if we disobey. And so the best way I can possibly help them is to provide an infrastructure, to create language around what we expect of them, right? So in our house, it's very, very simple. When we speak to each other, we speak clearly, calmly, and kindly. Those are the rules. That, that, that standard applies to me, to my wife, my wife to me, me to the kids, the kids to mommy, everybody, the kids to the kids, that's the rule. We speak clearly, calmly, and cl- kindly. Why those three? Well, because when my kids, being toddlers, when their emotions get revved up and they're like, I love this, and they just start going, when, they're, when their diaphragm's out of control, when they're crying and they're screaming, I can't understand what they're trying to tell me. And that becomes even more frustrating, as some of you guys have experienced in life, even in your older uh, ages when you're maybe breaking down about things and you're trying to talk and no one has a clue what you're saying. Uh, in those hyper-emotional states, I'm trying to teach them, hey, I really want to help you, and I really want to come around you with what you need right now, but if you don't do this calmly, there's no way I can understand what you're saying. And so then they learn how to control their response to things that happen in life. They're learning how to manage their emotions. They're learning how to control their emotions, not be controlled by their emotions. So we speak clearly, or calmly, rather. Why do we speak clearly? So that people can, uh, can comprehend what we need. If we're vague about it, if we have uncommunicated expectations, if I never told you I wanted that, but now I'm upset about you, that's not fair. And so we're clear in what we're trying to say. And why kind? Because we love each other and we respect each other. And and that's how we want to communicate to those that we love and respect and everybody. So we speak clearly, calmly, and kindly. My kids know that. And if they break the rules, then they get a consequence, right? But sometimes, even though they know those rules, and even though they know ultimately things go smoother when they obey, we have, an, we have a little saying, the happy way is to obey, right? Thank you. You can take that if you want one day when you have kids. I don't care. Actually, take it in your relationship with God right now. The happy way is to obey. It applies there too. <laughs> Facts, okay? But even though they know that, and even though they've experienced consequences from disobeying the rules, and even though they know if I speak clearly, calmly, and kindly, things work out better ultimately because mom and dad can understand what I need and want and can help me in that, and I don't get consequences and I don't get in trouble and it doesn't become this emotional thing, even though they know all that, guess what they do anyway? They push against those rules. They test it. They want to see, woo maybe if I throw a fit this time, pa-pa, stomp the feet a couple of times, and my middle child, he's the one, like he's the most notorious for doing this. Middle child's in the room, raise your hands, represent. My goodness, man. The Lord is sanctifying me so much through my middle child. So much. He understands all these things. He understands all these things. And still he thinks maybe this time, if I stomp my feet, if I whine, if I scream, if I yell, if I whine, if I pout, 
Maybe this time it'll work out. And it's like, buddy, they, it, it won't, it won't. So, so we have a desire in us, you know this, we have a desire in us to push against authority and rules. We have a desire to rebel, okay? We also have a desire in us to be loved. And that's where these two things come into play, these two questions. Do we struggle to trust God? Yeah, we do, because we wanna push against things. I mean, it's like, man, logically, God is the infinite being who has always been and always will be, and he's everywhere at once, and he's all-knowing and all-powerful, and he created everything we know, and he created us. Does he know better than we do? Yeah, probably, but when it comes down to it, do we trust that? No, I want to figure that out on my own. You know what I mean? Like, we, we push again, we explore. Like, God, I'm sure you're right, but I want to find out through failures. Like, why would you do that to yourself? We struggle to trust God, but we desire intimacy. We desire to be loved. It's how we're wired. And so we also struggle to feel God. Because when we disobey and, and our life kind of gets chaotic, now we're like, God, where are you? So do we struggle to trust? Do we struggle to feel? I want to explore these two questions tonight. As we look at, as we continue our series, heaven and earth collide. And uh, you like that word there? Collide? It gives it, it, gives it some action, right? Like we could have we just called it heaven and earth. That's, that's boring. You know, that's like, uh. Every other youth group out there doing that. Heaven and earth collide? Come on now. Come on. Like a sloppy wet kiss? I mean, come on now. Chris Tomlin. Easy. Is it Chris Tomlin? No, David Crowder. David Crowder. I'm on it, dude. Hey, not David Crowder. Okay. John Mark Comer. Got it. He wrote it. All right, here we go. We, uh, if, if tonight's sermon had a title, it would be this. The God above us, the God among us. The God above us, the God among us. Kind of nice there. Some of you guys, yes. God is not sus, okay? It's, don't, don't go there. <laughs> He's not the imposter, okay? All right, here we go. We are going to look at tonight, we're going to look a few places, but we're going to camp in Genesis. We're going to look at the creation narrative, the creation account. We're going to camp in Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, in other words, before anything, before everything, before anything was made that was made, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, let me go ahead and, and pause there and clarify something. We have to understand that the Bible is God's inspired word. So it's inspired in content, what is written, but it's also inspired in context. When was it written? The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and the Hebrew language is kind of tricky. It's, it's, it's a little bit more difficult, all right? And so sometimes English translations are accurate, but they don't paint the best picture. It's not that they're wrong. It's just that there's way more there in the original languages. In verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth. Here's what I want you to know. Heavens there is not. We tend to think of that verse as, in the beginning, God created the heavens as in this mystical, celestial, mysterious realm somewhere, and the clouds are all floating, and there's naked babies playing harps, and they have wings, and there's like weird Renaissance paintings of plump people there, and like, I don't know, there's a lot going on. We think about that word, God created the heavens, as in this celestial realm somewhere where God lives. And then we think about, and the earth, we kind of think about that holistically. Oh, God created the globe, the world that we live on. But that's not what this verse is saying. A more accurate understanding, take notes, write this down, a more accurate understanding, it's actually very simple and underwhelming. It's that in the beginning, God created the skies and the land. Skies and the land. Not the heavens, like celestial place where God's throne dwells. No, 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 just the skies, like where it's blue and there's clouds and sometimes it rains and just the skies. He created the skies. And not the earth as in the entire globe and everything on it. He, he just created land, land. Now that's significant and we're gonna come back to that. The earth was without form and it was void. Again, a, a better way of understanding what's being written here is the earth was unordered and uninhabited. It was formless and void, was unordered and uninhabited. In other words, there was nothing on it and it was chaos and darkness was over the face of the deep. There was no purpose, there was no order. Darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. All right, 
Genesis 1, 1 and 2. Did God create heaven and earth? Yes, he did. Heaven and earth means sky and land. The earth was formless and without void. It means no purpose, no order. It was chaos. It was unordered and uninhabited. Darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. All right? So, here's what I want to do. I'm going to, I have a diagram here. I'm about to show the diagram. It's a full picture. I'm still learning how to use technology, okay? I'm not that gifted in this. So I don't know how to create multiple pictures. So in other words, I'm about to push this back button and the full thing's gonna be up. I'm not talking about it all at once, but I know you guys are gonna be like, ooh, the whole thing. Let me just go ahead and draw it all. Please don't do that. Because then for the next 10 minutes, you won't hear what I'm about to say. I promise we'll cover everything you're about to see. Just go with the flow of how I teach, all right? Don't, don't like start drawing all sorts of crazy stuff in your nose. Whoa, whoa, let's go right now, all right? Just pause, chill. All right, so here's, here's the deal, okay? It's up on the screens for your convenience as well. Um, but here's, here's what's going on in the creation account. Last week, I said uh, above the red line, okay? Let's look above the red line. Last week, I said that most of us in this room, our basic understanding of the overall narrative of scriptures looks something like this, that at some point, God created the heavens and the earth. Now we know that to mean sky and land. That at some point, God created where we live and somewhere in there he created me and you and everybody in this room. And now we're on this kind of forward moving timeline. We don't really know how many days we have or years we have. If we just took a national average, I don't know, 80 to 85, 90 if you're really doing well, okay? If you drink soda every day and somehow you defy science. But we're on this timeline that moves forward and someday at the end of this timeline, we will expire because life is temporary, it's not permanent. And in that moment, we go to one of two places. Heaven is a really, really good place. Hell seems like a bad place and we don't wanna go there. And that seems to be what the scriptures say. Last week, I told you guys, this is, our, this is what most people think about the scriptures, or at the very least, this is what most people think that you think about the scriptures. And last week I said, this is entirely, uh, this, that narrative falls entirely short of painting a beautiful idea and a compelling idea of what I think the scriptures actually say. So at a glance, it's not that it's inaccurate, Like, I'm not saying that's false. What I'm saying is, and I used this illustration last week, if you were to meet me for the first time and you really wanted to get to know me, and I said, hello, but instead of giving you my name, I said something weird and cryptic like, my name begins with the letter M. Figure it out. Well, that wouldn't be inaccurate, but it is such a confusing and and kind of shallow introduction to who I am as a whole. It doesn't help you get to know my name. It doesn't help you get to know my person. It doesn't help you get to know my heart at all. And in that same way, if our basic understanding of the narrative of scriptures is this top line, we have fallen so short and we've ended up in such a shallow comprehension of what the story of the scriptures is all about. But most of us think this way, don't we? Like some of you in the room right now are like, Oh, I get, I mean, that's how I've come to understand the Bible. Is that wrong? No, it's not wrong. It's just incredible. Like, it's like, it's like such a small piece of the overall picture. And the overall picture is so much more compelling and beautiful than just that. And really, this, this thing works if you're fear-driven. Well, I don't want to go to hell, so I got to believe the right things and do the right things. Like, fear-driven people love that narrative. Or works-based people. I love earning. I want to do enough and believe the right things and stack it up so one day God says you did more good than bad so you can go go to heaven. It's just not that compelling of a story. I think the scriptures have a much more beautiful idea and that's the whole point of this series is to help us understand the foundation of what the scriptures talk about between heaven and earth. So if you missed last week, go check it out on our podcast or go watch the video on YouTube. It's a foundational message. It'll help you understand the rest of the series. So here's what's going on now. All right, let's look at creation. So let's focus on this middle picture. It is important for you to understand that the people who wrote the Old Testament were not, were not a bunch of Gen Z, no offense to you guys, but they weren't a bunch of Gen Z like teenagers from Greenville, South Carolina. Did you know that? Okay. I know you're shocked by that. You're like, what? Bet. Like, oh man. They had, they had their own culture, very dynamic culture. These were ancient Middle Eastern Hebrews. 
over thousands of years compiling this book. And so some of it is so contextual to the time or the place or the geography or the, or the culture or whatever. And so when we look at the Old Testament, the ancient Hebrew understanding of the creation, it's very, very different than what you and I might think about it. Now we know because of technology that we live on a globe and the globe is on an axis and that axis spins and that spin actually rotates around the sun and the sun's gravity pulls us in, but because of our speed, we actually bypass it and go out and then we're boomeranged back in and that's called an orbit. Like we know that now, but you gotta remember, this is like ancient Middle East, thousands of years ago. They're reading the creation narrative. They're, they're understanding the creation narrative. And so when we read Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the skies and the land and the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Ancient uh, Hebrew cultures would have understood that there is somehow some globe, some rim of water everywhere. That there's waters below us, water below, and there's waters above us. Like that's how they're interpreting this. There's waters. All right, so now let's go through the, the days of creation. The first three days I want you to think of in terms of realms, like themes, okay? The first three days, God created light. Now, interestingly, if you know the creation order, he doesn't create the sun and moon and stars until day four, right? But on day one, light exists. This is the light that emits from God himself. This is the light of God's glory. This is the light of God's presence. This is the light that radiates out of God's being. Light existed on day one and it tore through the darkness. God here is uh, creating the realm of measurable time. We have light and darkness. They're distinct from each other. He's creating the, the, the theme or the realm of measurable time. And then on day two, God creates the sky and the seas. So he creates kind of this, the, the Hebrew mind would have, would have understood in these waters that surround everything, he, he created light in there. And then day two, these skies form in the context of these waters and he's holding back the waters from above and, and the waters below, we are resting on them. And he also creates the seas on top of that water below. And then on day three, he would have created the land mass. And bonus, he created plants on day three as well. A little bonus creation for day three. And so they, they would have begun to understand uh, th the picture like this. Now, on days four through six, it's all specific. It coordinates to each of those realms. So on day one, God God's light emitted into creation. Well, on day four, he created the physical light sources, the sun, the moon, the stars, that are a reflection of his divine light. They give us a glimpse into his light. He created those in correspondence with his light. On day five, he created creatures. What kind of creatures? Creatures specifically for the sky and the seas that coordinate with day two of creation. So he creates birds and fish and they start to fill this area. Then on day six, he creates creatures again. What kind of creatures? Specific to coordinate with day three. He creates land and plants on day three, so he creates beasts of the field of every kind. And bonus, the same way we got a bonus over here with plants, he creates humans on day six. Do you see how it coordinates the structure of, and the order that God is creating in? You guys see that, the theme that's going on there? He creates realms and then he fills the realms with specific things. And so ancient Hebrew mind would have understood it to look something like this. There's waters above and waters below and the spirit was hovering over them and God brought light through his presence and he divided the waters with the sky and somehow he holds the waters back with the sky, this, this dome of sky above us. And then he puts waters underneath us and seas and out of those come land and on land comes plants. And then he fills the realm of the skies with stars and moons and suns and clouds and weather and all those wonderful things. And he fills the, the realm of the skies and the waters with creatures specific to them. And then he fills the realm of land with creatures specific to them. That's the creation narrative that we see all through Genesis 1. Tracking with me so far? Yes? Okay, cool. So from that, what we get is a picture of a God who is so powerful and so creative that we, we like are flattened in awe of his wonder and imagination and creativity and beauty. Like to, to think through, I mean, this is such a big picture of view, but to think through all the, the delicate, intricate 
like little details of every single part of creation and how it all goes together. And one thing that's distinct about every single day is every single day begins with, and God said, all of these days are put into motion through God's word, the power of his word. And every day ends with the exact same phrase, there was evening and there was morning the first day, there was evening and there was morning the second day, there was evening and there was morning the third day. Every single day of the six days so far begins with, and God said, and ends with, there was evening and there was morning. So back to verse two, the earth was formless and void. In other words, it was unordered and uninhabited. There was no purpose and no order. It was chaotic. What does God bring in his creation process? He brings order. God takes chaos and begins to bring order. God takes something purposeless and begins to give it purpose. And God said, marks every single day. There was evening and morning, marks the end of every single day. He begins to give it order. He begins to bring purpose through his creation. We're not gonna really focus on it all that much tonight, but eventually we will talk about evil, the problems of evil. Like, what do we do with the problems of evil? The presence of evil in this world. And just real quick, I, I want to let you know that evil is a manifestation of disorder. What the scriptures talk about is behind the scenes, there, there are demonic and devilish entities at work that rebel against God, and they don't reside in, in some place we call hell. They reside here on earth. That's the, the biblical understanding of it. And their function, their role, is to go around and disrupt the order that God has enacted. And they do that through corrupt means, corrupt institutions, corrupt people, cor- corrupt uh, religions, corrupt government. They, they, they bring chaos and disorder on this earth. God's heart is to bring order and goodness to his creation. From the very beginning, that's what we see. Evil's desire is to disrupt that and bring disorder. So in creation, we see God is overall and in all and through all. Let's take a look at Psalm 113. Psalmist is reflecting on God. A lot of Old Testament authors reflect on um, God throughout their writings. This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 113. The Lord, Yahweh, is high above all nations and his glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is seated on high? So notice the language. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord? So the way, the way that a lot of Old Testament authors describe God is that he is high above us. He is in the skies. He is in the heavens. He resides there. He, he lives there. His throne is there. That's how they begin to talk about God. I want to circle back to this idea in a minute. So as we look in the creation account, we see that there is a loving God and a creative God and a beautiful God who desires to share himself with his creation. And on day six, he creates humans. The last thing he creates is humans. It's the only part of creation that he didn't speak into existence, but he used his hands to create. And it's the only thing that he said, it's not just good, it's very good. Human beings are the pinnacle of creation. And God desired a relationship with them. And so if you're in the room tonight and you've ever struggle to trust God. Man, I I struggle to trust God. I want to give you three reasons that we can trust God just by a simple observation of Genesis 1 as a creation narrative. Three reasons that we can trust God. Number one, God brings order from chaos. And that's really what we desire, isn't it? If you have a problem with evil in this world, then you have a problem with chaos. If you have a problem with corrupt government, you have a problem with chaos. If you have a problem with sex trafficking, you have a problem with chaos. If you have a problem with child pornography, you have a problem with chaos. The root of all those things is chaos. It's disrupted order of how God has made things to be. It's evil manifest in a good and ordered reality, creating chaos and disrupting all of it. The heart of evil and and problems that we experience in this world is chaos. It's a disruption of God's order. He's created order and goodness. God has created a world that is ordered and good. God brings order from chaos. So if you have a problem with evil, I just want you to know God has a bigger problem with evil. The teachings of Jesus are so radical when understood through this lens. Like let's just take the Sermon on the Mount for instance. Let's go back, let's go back to the issue of sex trafficking or um, 
the evils of, of child pornography or, or the evil things done to women by evil men or whatever, like whatever category you want to look at. If you've got a problem with those things, <laughs> Jesus comes along and says, hey, you've heard it's a sin to look at a woman lustfully I, or, or commit adultery. I tell you it's a sin to even look at her lustfully in your mind. Like our standard of evil is like when the action happens. We have a problem when, when the action is occurring, when someone gets trafficked, when, when, when someone is... Uh, forced into something beyond their consent. We, we've got a problem with that. Jesus comes along and says, actually, if you even imagine those things as a reality in your mind, that's what I have a problem with. See, the teachings of Jesus are so radical compared to our standard. You have a problem with evil, his is way more. He's got a bigger problem. If you've got a problem with vengeance, if you've got a problem with um, killing and murder and massacre and genocide and, and all of these realities that we have on this earth, Again, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus comes along and he says, hey, you've heard it's a sin to kill your brother. I'm telling you it's a sin to to hate your brother. Jesus has a problem with evil as well, but his standard is so far past ours. God brings order from chaos. Evil creates chaos within the order. Jesus has come to recreate the order again. So we can trust God because his standard is order and not chaos. That's what he made. Number two, we can trust God because he defines good and evil. If, if, left up, if left up to us, we are subjective at times. We have preferences. We have opinions. We make decisions in haste. We make decisions when we're angry or upset. If we were, if we were the ones who got to define good and evil, there would be a million different standards of what good and evil looks like because we would never agree. And so if we believe that there is such a thing as a moral law, that there is good and evil, then, then we need to believe that there is also a moral law giver who is not subject to the influences of evil, someone who has never sinned, who is able to resist sin at all costs, who is incapable of sinning, who has defeated the sin, and that would be God. And if that's the case, then he gets to define the standard of good and evil, and we can trust him in that. And third, he created and loves us. He created order, he defines good and evil, and then he places us in that to thrive to experience his goodness and love and intimacy and presence. And we can trust those things. Now, the the verse I read a minute ago out of the book of Psalms describes God as far above us. His throne is in the skies. And because here we see God created the heavens and the earth and we've often misunderstood what that means, we think of the celestial realm, not just the literal skies and land. One of the conclusions that we have come to reach as a people largely is that God's home, like if there is such a thing as God's home or his throne, it is somewhere in the clouds, somewhere in the skies, some like abstract idea of heaven we have and we walk through this way and we go into this building and we walk through those doors and there's the throne room. Ah, but it's always up there. And I just want you to know tonight that God does not live in the clouds. Thank you, Brooke. Wow, yeah. Hey, come on now. I got an amen on that one. God does not live in the clouds. When we read Old Testament passages, like the one we read out of of Psalms, when we read those passages and they talk about God living in the sky and God above the earth and God's realm is the skies or the heavens or whatever, keep in mind, the Bible is inspired in content, what is written, and context, when was it written. We fly through the skies in aluminum tubes with wings. We do. It's, I don't understand how it works, something about dragon force, but we do. In fact, the first ever uh, only tourist group just launched into Earth, Earth's orbit and came back. No astronauts, just tourists. The first ever excursion just happened. In fact, we've even gone beyond the skies into space, right? So the idea of skies to us is really not that impressive. Like we have apps that tell us what that thing is going to do. Oh, it's going to rain today. Like we feel like we have mastery over the sky. But think about it, ancient, ancient civilizations, the sky was untouchable. You were at the will of whatever the sky wanted to do. It is so vast and so large and so big and there's no way to explore it. It held authority in your life. You were in awe by this thing. You felt so small and insignificant compared to this thing. So when we see the Old Testament authors talking about God is in the skies or God's throne is in the skies or God's home is in the heavens. 
what they're doing is using a metaphor to describe God's authority. He is so far above us. He is holy. He is without sin. His authority is so far above us because he's the creator. We are not God's, he is God. They're, They're using disguise as a metaphor to describe his authority, but they're not using disguise as a literal way of describing where God lives. God does not live in the skies. So to our second question, do we struggle to feel God at times? Can we see in the scriptures that God is near to us and close to us? What about feeling God? He does not live in the clouds. Here's here's what I want you to know, all right? So remember our creation process here? You guys still with me? You tracking? Okay, good. A quiet room is typically a dead room, so I've either lost you or you're enthralled in the learning process that is taking hold here. (laughs) Thank you. We're enthralled. Thank you so much. All right. So remember our creation process here? So here's what I want you to know. Let's build some context. In ancient civilizations, we see it three times specifically in the Old Testament. There are records of civilizations surrounding Israel that have done this as well. In fact, there's a record of someone uh, of a civilization doing this 1,000 years before Solomon even built the temple, all right? So ancient civilizations were notorious for this. If you believed in a god or gods and you wanted to build a temple to that god, you would build the temple and then there would be always, in ancient civilizations, there would be a seven-day process dedicating that temple to that god. It was always seven days. It's not just a Hebrew concept that we see in the Old Testament. Ancient civilizations were notorious for this. It was always a seven-day process of dedicating a temple to their God. But see, in Genesis, we don't read about people building a temple to a God they believe in. We read a, an unbelievable countercultural story. I mean, it would have just been shocking to read this if in that culture. We read a story about a God who is building something for his people, not people building something for their God. And ancient minds, Hebrew minds, would have picked up on this immediately. The seven-day creation process would have been seen as this metaphorical way of describing God is creating a temple. And the seven days are dedicating that temple. Well, what does he create in that seven days? Is it a building somewhere in the skies? What does he create? We just went over for like 20 minutes. Please know the answer to this. What does he create in those seven days? Yeah, earth, the world we live in. So hear me, God's temple is not some abstract, far-removed place that we can never access. God creating the world in seven days to an ancient mind, they would have understood God is building his temple here. He's dedicating this. This is his temple. His presence dwells here. It's not somewhere up there. His authority is as high as the skies, but his presence is here. Now, if that's not enough for you, let's let's take a look at this. What about this? I didn't even go over this. Day seven, right? I left it blank. It's the only day that doesn't begin with, and God said, and it's the only day that doesn't end with, there was evening and there was morning. What happened on day seven? God rested. Now the Hebrew word there, Shabbat, would be under, (laughs) Shabbat, would be understood to mean he ceased. He ceased. He ceased creating. But he didn't cease his presence because there's another nuance of resting in the Hebrew language, which is I'm not just ceasing from what I'm doing. I'm settling in now. God resting on the seventh day the fact that it's open-ended like this, it's not marked like the rest of the days. There's, there's no distinct, there was evening and there was morning. In other words, it's open-ended is this figurative way of God saying, my presence is settling in with my people and will be forever because there's no signifier to evening and morning on the seventh day. You can check that out. Genesis chapter two is the seventh day, verses one through three. So there's no like time marker. It's this figurative way of God saying, I'm settling in, I'm I'm ceasing from creation, but now my presence is settling into my temple with my people, and my, my presence will be a permanent reality with them forevermore. Now, if that's not enough for you, 
when people built temples dedicated to gods, those temples would always be ornate with images, decorations of those gods. You'd, you'd walk outside and there'd be statues of gods. If, if you've ever been to Egypt, you've seen some of these, these weird like half dog, man, lion things, right? Like, so there's these images, these statues, or they're carved onto the walls when you walk in, or, or the temples are just littered with images. But again, Genesis is not about people creating a temple for God. It's about God creating a temple for himself. And that temple is with us in the world that he's creating. And God doesn't carve images into the earth. Where does he place his images? Come on now. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, 28 says this. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves. Everything I've created in these realms, how I've filled them, now share in my ruling with me. God did not carve his image into the earth, into his temple. He placed his image in us and then shared his authority with us. The idea of God was always to create heaven on earth, share myself with my people, I will dwell among them, and I will share with them my authority to continue to create and do good, as I've defined it, and continue to create order in this earth. Now, ancient civilizations would have been ruled by kings, right? Like, and kings would often refer to themselves as gods. I mean, this would have, like, people would have read this creation account and been like, what? Because we have a story where God is making his temple home, earth, with us. His presence is here with us. His images are us. And his authority is now given to us. I mean, if you read through the Old Testament scriptures, they were never supposed to have a king because God was their king. He's already shared authority with them. They weren't supposed to carve any images to represent God because, not, because nothing could boil God's image down to a simple thing because his image is already in his people. Like the original design of God was to create heaven on earth, share himself with his people. We carry his image. He gives us the authority that is rightfully due to him to continue to create and create order and good in this earth. And evil and sin disrupted everything. God dedicated his temple, the earth, in seven days. He ceased from creating and settled in on the seventh day. His presence is permanently with us and his images are us. Now ultimately we see God's presence in Jesus Christ. Because the story of, of our faith doesn't just end in this creation order, we actually see God eventually putting skin on and coming to live among us. See in John chapter 1, look at what John 1 verse 1 and 114 say, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as the son from the father full of grace and truth. The God who has authority as high as the skies has made his home among us and made his presence known to us and has settled in for all time with us. What we see throughout all of scriptures is that the original design was this, that there are two domains, two realms. There's heaven on earth. In the beginning, God created the skies and the land, God's space and man's space. They were overlapping, heaven on earth. We believed the lies of the serpent. We desire to define good and evil for ourselves. We desire to bring about chaos in the world of order that God has made. And we sinned, severing the two realms. And so instead of heaven on earth, you have heaven and earth, two separate realms. And all throughout history, what we see God doing is trying to bring these realms back together. Sometimes so close, I mean, you could even describe them as, as kissing, very briefly. All throughout the Old Testament, we have covenants being made with Abraham and Noah and David. We have these relationships being formed. We have psalms and songs being written and wisdom literature being written and prophets declaring things about the kingdom of God. These realms are coming close and close and close, but because of sin, they could never fully overlap again until one day Jesus came and the first words out of his mouth were, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand, Matthew chapter four. The first utterance 
not out of his mouth as a baby, but public ministry. The first utterance in his public ministry is the kingdom has come. Heaven is not just some reality that you go to when you die. Heaven has actually already come to us through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The realms are overlapping again. And Jesus, upon his second coming, will fully abolish the realities of evil and pain and suffering and death. And all of this is hinged upon this weird overlap of the realms where Jesus on the cross took upon every ounce of evil and sin and disruption and chaos for all time so that one day these realms can fully overlap again. And what we see, the very last page of our Bible in the book of Revelation describes a new heaven and a new earth where God's people are brought back into a garden reality, which is now represented by a city. And they now again will be given God's presence forevermore and God's authority to rule and rest with him. In fact, that's the main message that we see all throughout scripture. The God who is far above us has made his home among us so that we can rule and rest with him forever. If there is a bottom line to scripture and the narrative of scripture, it is that. The God who is far above us, not his home, not his presence, his authority, that's why we can trust him. The God who is far above us has made his home among us so that we can rule and rest with him forever. The same way he created heaven on earth here, And the same way he told Adam and Eve, my image is in you, have dominion over everything I've created. You have authority to rule and create good and order in this world. Fill it and be fruitful and multiply. When we sinned and disrupted everything, Jesus is making all things right again. And one day in the new heaven and new earth, this will be our reality. The God who is far above us, his authority, has made his presence, his home, his intimacy known among us so that we can rule and rest with him forever. The overall story of the scriptures is not just, yeah, God made everything, somewhere I'm there, one day I'll die and I'll go somewhere. The reality of the scriptures, the story that the scriptures tell is that God loved us so much that he created heaven on earth and he wanted to share that with us. Not just the space, but his authority to rule and do good and and be good and create order and chaos and share and all of that, to design the world with him. And we rebelled because we thought we knew better and we thought that we could define good and evil on our own. And man, we, we, we messed it up. But then God, having made his home among us, kept reaching out, kept chasing us, kept finding us, kept pursuing us, and eventually became one of us to undo everything we did and bring order and goodness into this world again. And he's actually creating a future world, a new heaven and a new earth. And one day we, we will be with him there again. That story is way more compelling and way more alluring and way more beautiful. Do we struggle to trust God? Yeah, we struggle to trust God. But he is trustworthy. His authority is as high as the heavens, as high as the skies. He's created order from chaos. He defines good and evil. He made and loves us. Do we struggle to feel God sometimes? Yeah, we do. But man, when we look into the creation account, what we see is that God has made his temple our home, where we live, this earth, that's his temple. And he ceased creating, the mark of, it's done, and now I'm just gonna settle in to be with my creation. And the images that I wanna carve on my temple are actually in my people. They're gonna bear my image and my authority and my name. Do we struggle to feel God? Yeah, we will at times. But what unbelievably beautiful truths we can fall back on and see in the creation order that God has made his home among us so that we can rule and rest with him forever. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for, thank you for creating. Thank you for making everything we know to be made. Father, we, ah, it's so easy to just open Genesis 1 and kind of approach it with all the assumptions and all the things we think we already know and just read right past all this amazing stuff. God, we thank you for creating order out of chaos. 
Evil seems to disrupt the order that you've made. Part of Jesus' teaching is that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. This, this chaotic reality that, that evil creates. And so, Father, we thank you for creating order and structure, giving purpose and function, defining good and evil, and sharing your presence with us and inviting us to create order and good with you and experience those things forevermore. And, Father, we are so sorry when we sin and continue to disrupt your creation. But we thank you for the cross where all of our sin has been paid for and dealt with, where all the evil for all time is already defeated. We thank you for your son, Father, who's making all things new and all new things and bringing us to a new heaven and new earth where we will rest in you and rule with you as you share your authority with us forevermore. Heaven on earth once again in the presence of our creator. Father, help us to trust you when we're struggling to do so. Bring us back to these truths. Help us to, to feel you and experience you and, and to remember that you are never far from us. I know it may seem that way or feel that way sometimes, but you are never far from us. You've made your home among us. You don't live in the skies. You live here. Your temple is here. Your images are us. You've shared yourself in every way imaginable. And we thank you for that, Father. So help us be reminded of these truths when we struggle with these two questions. Bring us back to the reality of your creation. We love you, Father. We're so amazed by you. We thank you for your word to teach us these things and your spirit to help us understand them. In Jesus' name, amen.